0: Hello, listeners. I'm Greg Boyd. God bless you guys. So glad that you're tuning in here. Uh, before we get to this week's sermon, which is going to rattle a few cages, all right, but before we do that, I want to remind you that we're in week two of our sustain campaign. This is where we go to our listeners and we just ask that you consider uh, uh, helping support the ministry of Willingell's Church, which makes these podcasts possible. So this year we thought we'd do something a little different. We thought it'd be fun to, to read a testimony uh, during the sustain campaign. Uh, so here's the testimony. Greg, you're a heretic and you suck as a preacher. Just kidding. That's not what they said. It says, uh, I find the podcast to be invaluable as I continue my spiritual journey and seek a clear picture of God. Thank you so much for your insight and constant effort to seek and teach about the heart of God. Bless, blessings on all of you. That's from John. Thanks John, really appreciate that. We get testimonies like that all the time and it really is just so, so very encouraging. So we've gotten through one week of our Sustained Campaign and we're already over halfway towards our goal. Uh, a lot of the folks who have signed up are have been proud for a while and we thank you for your consistency and your faithfulness. But a lot of folks are, are new. Uh, and and what's really exciting is that they're from all over the place. I mean, we got some people signing up from Ireland, God bless the Irish, and and down there from uh, in Scotland, Australia, and then all over the place in the United States, all the way from balmy Texas to not-quite-so-balmy Minnesota. Uh, It's it's just encouraging to see the reach of this. For those of you who haven't signed up yet, can I ask you to prayerfully consider doing so? Um, you can give any amount and you can give a, with any frequency. Uh, plus, you'll get one of our world-famous, awesome, super fantastic, miraculous t-shirts, Podrishner t-shirts. And so there's that. Uh, just go to whchurch.org sustain. And it's very easy to do. So God bless you. And now buckle your seatbelts for this message. See you later. Good morning, world and health. So good to see you this morning. On this lovely day, I'm Greg. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Woodland Hills Church. And uh, welcome to all of you. You know, Jesus said that uh, we're to worship the Lord our God with all of our strength, with all of our heart, and with all of our mind. And it seems to me that that last one gets left out of the equation quite frequently in Christian circles. The mind is meant to think, that's what it does. Uh, to wrestle with things, to try to figure things out. And um, so we worship God with our mind when we're authentically, honestly, just trying to wrestle with things, trying to make sense out of things. Uh, that's what the mind's for. Uh, we worship God when, when we're passionate, passionate about being honest with issues that we've got to wrestle through. So in the series that we're in, that we're calling Sure, um, we're wrestling with, with, with challenges that are post-modern, post-Christian uh, pluralistic culture presents to our faith. And we're trying to be very honest about this. Uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at, oh, and, and on that note, I mean, this is why we love questions, because questions make you think, or uh, questions are actually evidence that you are thinking. And so as I'm going through this message today, as we've done with the previous messages, uh, if a question arises or an objection arises or something like that, text them into this number, 651 321 That's 651 321 uh, and and uh, next week, uh, Paul, Eddie, and I are going to be just taking these questions and, 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 and chewing on them and doing the best we can to answer them. Uh, if you don't have a texting device, you can just write them on a piece of paper and turn them, in, turn them into a help desk out there in the gathering area, and uh, they'll get to us that way. All right? So be thinking. This one's going to require a lot of thinking. Like last week's didn't require any thinking at all. But this week's, this is going to be uh, quite a challenge. I want to be looking at, taking an honest look at the the apparent imperfections of the Bible, uh, the errors, the contradictions, things like that. Um, and, and so if, if this, the, this message is entitled, Why the Bible, Why I Believe in the Bible, but I want to give it this subtitle, because I think it's quite clever. The Bible's Perfect Imperfection. There you go. I think i write a book on that with that title. The Bible's Perfect Imperfection. You'll see what I'm talking about here in a little bit. But before I get to the problems in the Bible, uh, let's ask this question Why believe the Bible in the first place? Why put your trust in the Bible uh, in, in the first place? It's a very nice song, but could you turn it off? Um, so here's the thing I think, in my experience, if, if, if most Christians, if they're asked, why do you believe in Jesus, they'll say, well, because the Bible says he's Lord. And then if they're asked, well, why believe in the Bible, they'll say, well, because the Bible is divinely inspired. And then if they're asked, why do you think the Bible is divinely inspired, it seems to me that in my experience, most Christians would quote the Bible. The Bible says it's inspired. Now, in this pluralistic post-Christian culture, that argument isn't going to get you very far. It's a classic case of what's called circular reasoning. Circular reasoning is when you reason in a circle, a would you assume the truth of your, conc- your conclusion to prove your conclusion. It's a bit like me saying, um, the way you can know that I'm always telling the truth is because I always tell the truth. It's, it's not really even an argument, I just repeated myself. So the, quoting the Bible to prove the Bible, it just doesn't get you very far. There's a number of considerations that you could look at to support belief, the belief that the Bible is divinely inspired. But, but here's the one that I think is, 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 is the strongest. Um, Rather than basing your belief in Jesus on the Bible, I encourage people to base their belief in the Bible on Jesus. All right, let me track it with me this morning. Good. Um, And then if you're asked why believe in Jesus, well, get the message from two weeks ago. Uh, There's a number of considerations why you should believe in Jesus, but the strongest ones, I think, are Historical. Uh, there's this strong, historical, compelling reasons to believe that Jesus Christ really is Lord. So the argument looks like this. This is the argument for biblical inspiration that I would I think is the strongest. First, we've got very good reasons, as I showed two weeks ago. If you weren't here two weeks ago, I encourage you to get that message. Uh, that we have compelling historical reasons to accept that the early disciples weren't lying and they weren't passing on legends when they proclaimed Jesus Christ as Lord. We thus have compelling historical reasons to accept that the Gospels are basically reliable and to therefore accept that Jesus Christ is Lord. Their presentation of Jesus as Lord, I think, is, is, is reliable. And there's historical reasons for thinking that. Now, on the basis of these generally reliable Gospels, we see that Jesus clearly endorsed the Old Testament as divinely inspired. And he, in various ways, pre-authenticated the New Testament. He gave his disciples his own authority. He said the Holy Spirit will lead him into all truth and things like that. So, if Jesus is Lord, if we confess Jesus to be Lord, I don't think we're in a position to correct his theology, especially not on such a foundational matter as Scripture. Now, Jesus, you're my Lord, but, you know, you're kind of off on this point about Scripture. Uh, It just doesn't work. If he's Lord, we have to uh, submit to his opinion of this. So, on on the authority of Jesus, I, I I accept Scripture as being divinely inspired. So, the conclusion, then, is that, all who confess Jesus, in my, in my view, all who confess Jesus to be Lord, must consider the Old and New Testaments to be the inspired Word of God. So th- that's, the, th- that's why we hold this to be the inspired Word of God. It's, it's on, on the authority of Jesus, not, not the other way around. Paul, Paul puts it like this in 2 Timothy. He says, All Scripture is divinely inspired, he uses this word theonoustos, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in Righteousness. This phrase theonoustos comes from the combination of the word God, theos, and the word to breathe, noustos. So it literally means God breathed. All scripture is God breathed. And I actually like that word better. I like that translation better than divinely inspired. Uh, For one thing, I think it's always good to stick as close to the literal translation as possible. And And God breathed is the literal translation of theonoustos. But on top of that, um, we, we, we say a lot of things are divine, and we say a lot of things are, are, are inspired. Uh, you know, oh, oh, this cake is just divine, or but uh, oh, that was an inspiring message, or what an inspiring performance on the football uh, field, or, or whatever. And so to say the Bible is divinely inspired doesn't really set it in a category of its own. It gets filed in the category of divine and inspiring things. Whereas God breathed, it sounds a little awkward, sounds a little weird, but it captures the uniqueness of the Bible. This book alone is God breathed. He breathed it out. So I, 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 I'm going to be referring to the divine inspiration of the Bible usually as by saying it's God breathed, breathed by God. So what does that mean? What does that mean? To say that something is God breathed. Now at this point, I want to give a, a warning and a disclaimer. Okay, the warning is this. Uh, we're wrestling with these issues, these problematic aspects of the Bible. want well, to be very honest about these things. These tend to be ignored. Uh, we pretend like they're not there, but they are. We've got to wrestle with them. We've got to think about those things. And as I'm doing this, it, for some of you, especially if you come from a conservative background, and especially if you're new here to the church, uh, this will probably sound like the strangest message you've ever heard from an evangelical pulpit. Um, it may even feel to you at, at early on that I'm attacking the foundation of your faith. And I, I, I'm just going to ask that you trust me that I'm not doing that. I, I'm actually trying to strengthen the foundation of your faith. And if you'll hear me out, I think you'll see uh, that, that, that it works. Okay, so just hang in there. But it's going to be weird. This is going to be one of those mind benders. All right. The second thing is a disclaimer, and that is um, the views that are expressed here this morning in this pulpit are not necessarily the official views of Woodland Hills Church. Uh, This is my way of honestly wrestling with a difficult issue. It doesn't have to be your way, all right? You're free to think on your own, though if you're smart, you'll probably agree with me, but I'm just saying, I'm just just saying. Okay, so there's the disclaimer, but it's going to be a little bit weird. So here's the thing. Evangelicals, and I... I consider myself broadly evangelical, though I don't admit that in public until, <laughs> until I know what the person, if someone says, are you evangelical? I'll say, I don't know what you mean by that term, because I don't. Uh, it has a lot of baggage uh, that I would not, not associate myself with. But I do tend to believe what evangelicals believe. tend to believe what evangelicals believe. And so this is broadly in the evangelical church. And evangelicals tend to assume that if, if you believe the Bible is God-breathed, well, then you believe that it's, it's, it's a perfect book. It's, it's free of all errors and contradictions and historical inaccuracies and things like that. And so if there are any kind of errors or contradictions or historical inaccuracies, they're only apparent, and, and you try to explain them away. Uh, in fact, for a lot of evangelicals, maybe even most, this is sort of a litmus test. Uh, the, the test on whether or not you are a true Orthodox Christian or whether you're a heretic who will burn in hell forever. Do you believe in the, in the inerrancy of the Bible? That's the term they use, the inerrancy of the Bible. Um, and the reasoning behind that is this. They reason that if God is perfect, then the book he breathes must be perfect. A perfect God would breathe a perfect book. Now, on one level, uh, that, that may seem to make common sense. But I actually think it's, it's a, a misguided argument. And in fact, if I'm honest with you, and I always try to be honest with you, uh, I I think it's a dangerous argument, a dangerous view. I have, and here's why. I've seen more young people lose their faith over this doctrine of inerrancy than any other other single thing that that, that Christians believe. Uh, In fact, it contributed to my loss of faith when I was a freshman at the University of Minnesota. The reason is it sets people up for a fall. You're you're, you're taught to expect that this Bible is going to be perfect. It's going to be free of any kind of error. And then you take a course at the university or some university or you read a book that's critical of the Bible or you talk to a friend who's got some knowledge about things or maybe you're just your own studying and you come upon some error or some contradiction or or something that you can't explain away. And since you assume that if it's God-breathed, it must be perfect, well, when you discover it's not perfect, you conclude that it can't be divinely inspired. If it's not divinely inspired, then Jesus must be wrong when he endorses it as divinely inspired, so he can't be the son of God, and now your faith goes down the toilet. And statistics indicate that that is happening kind at an alarming rate. One of the reasons I gave this talk to our young folks in Echo back in January is that I don't want to see our kids going off to the university and losing their faith because some professor convinced them that there's an error in the Bible. I just think it's altogether unnecessary. Um, and 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 so I, I think that line of reasoning is 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 actually uh, m- m- misguided. Um, so here's the thing: I, 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 I want to give a sampling of the kind of problems that we're talking about. And here's where it's going to strike some of you, if you're new to the church, maybe even if you're old to the church, as as a rather strange message. Here's a pastor up there talking about the errors and imperfections of the Bible, but. I'd rather you hear it from me than from some critic out there, because I will end this thing. It may feel like I'm attacking the foundation of your faith, but hang in there because I'm going to argue that these imperfections shouldn't at all shake our faith or in the, in the, our confidence that, the, that, the, that all Scripture is God-breathed. In fact, I'm going to argue that the, the imperfections actually contribute to the inspiration of the Bible. It's a perfectly imperfect book. But hang in there. First, we've got to look at the problems. So here's the problems. On the one hand, you have throughout the Bible an ancient pre-scientific cosmology, their view of the world. Uh, You're dealing with people way before there was anything like science. And their beliefs about the cosmos were basically based on their perceptions. And and so they describe things as as they appear, not as they actually are. They're not scientifically accurate. So for example, uh, everybody in the ancient Near East, which is the cultural context in which the Old Testament was written, They believe the sky is a dome that's hard as a molten mirror, which is the hardest thing they knew back then. They thought it was hard, for it separates the waters that were under the dome from the waters that are above the dome. It's hard for us to enter into this worldview because we're so informed by science. When we look at the sky, we know that we're looking into air and we're looking out into this expansive universe, but they didn't know that. And if you just look at the sky, it looks like a dome. So they thought it was a hard dome. And it, it, it holds up water. It has to be hard because it holds all this water up there. In Genesis, it says that God made the firmament, which in Hebrew it's a, it's a word for a solid thing, the firmament, and he, he used it to separate the water above from the water below. So He inserts this like a cookie sheet into this water, and He lifts the water above from the uh, water above and separates from the water below. So it's a hard dome holds up water. That dome rests on pillars, as does the earth, as it sits upon the waters that encircle it. Uh, They thought the earth was surrounded by water. It's a circle that sits on this water. And uh, pillars hold up the dome, and pillars hold up the the, the earth in the midst of this water. Ancient and Eastern worldview. If you ask what holds up the pillars, there's no answer. It's pillars all the way down. But on that score, we haven't really improved much in science, I don't think, because we're told that if you go back far enough, 13.6 billion years, you'll find that all the matter of the universe was condensed into a dime-sized ball of pre-matter, and it all of a sudden exploded. That's how we get all that we have now. And if you ask where did that dime-sized ball of super-condensed pre-matter come from, there's no answer. So we're on the same footing. But that's last week's message. If you weren't here, I encourage you to get it. All right. Then uh, Yahweh opens windows in the solid dome when he wants it to rain, allowing the waters above the do- dome to fall to the ground. Uh, there has to be windows up there, because how else is the water going to get down here? right? So he opens up the windows. Now, we read that, we think it's his poetry or something, but they thought that was literally the case. He opens up windows, and the water falls down. And then the sun, moon, and stars are lights in the dome that were placed there to function as signs and for seasons and for days and for years. So it's, the imagery is kind of like if you put Reese's peanut butter cup things into a frosting of a cake or something, you implant it there. That's what Yahweh does with the lights. He, 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 Plants into the dome uh, the stars and the sun and the moon and gives them a certain order that they're to follow. uh, And that's what keeps track of the days and the weeks and the months and the years and things of that sort. So it's a pre-scientific cosmology. Uh, It's not scientifically accurate. Uh, unless you really believe that there are pillars holding up the earth. That's why when people say, I believe the whole Bible is literally true, I don't think, either, either they're not telling them the truth or they haven't read the Bible. Because I don't think anyone believes that pillars really hold up the earth and, and the sky's hard as a molten mirror. Anyways, uh, then you have these sea monsters in the Bible. Uh, everybody in the ancient, ancient Near East believed that um, in the waters that circle the earth, there are these monsters that are threatening the earth. And they all look to their chief god to hold those monsters at bay. And this is what we find in, in the Bible. Uh, the main ones in the Bible are Leviathan and Rahab and Behemoth. But there's a number of others as well. Cosmic forces. Now some people try to argue that these references to Leviathan and Behemoth, they're, they're references to natural creatures like, like hippopotamus and, and alligators or something like that. But the way that the New Testament authors describe them is They're not at all natural creatures. And if you compare the biblical references to uh, other references in the ancient Near East, because we find these monsters in other literature, um, they're cosmic creatures. They're they're mythological expressions for things that we would call Satan or principalities and powers. So here's a few examples. Leviathan has many heads. I don't know any natural creature in all of history that has had many heads. But it says that Yahweh uh, crushes the heads of Leviathan. Sometimes he's portrayed as having many heads, sometimes as one head. But he's this cosmic beast that's got many heads, blows smoke out of its noses and fire out of its mouths. I don't know any, an alligator, I don't, I, last I checked, alligators don't do that, neither do hippopotamuses. Even the gods are overwhelmed by the sight of them. Uh, the gods being the subordinate deities uh, 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 under Yahweh. I don't think the gods would be overwhelmed at the sight of a hippopotamus. This monster can eat iron like straw and crush bronze as if it was, uh, were decayed timber. Here Yahweh is chiding Job, saying, Job, if you think you can do a better job at taming Leviathan uh, and, and, and controlling Leviathan than me, well then have at it. Pick up your spear and go at him. Oh, that's right. He eats bronze like it was straw. Maybe you better not do that. Um, then, not a hippopotamus. Only God can sub- subdue this creature, and even he uses a sword. Uh, uh, no one else can even approach this being. So they're talking about these cosmic agents. Uh, but th- they're mythological. Mythological expressions of forces of evil that threaten the earth. They were right in thinking that there's forces of evil that threaten the earth, but the way that they conceived of them was very mythological. Then we have this. Okay, the contradictions in the Bible. Let's just get really honest with this we get, we got to deal with this. Here's this, two, two, two examples. Uh, in 2 Samuel 24, the Lord incited David to sin by counting his army. Counting your army was a sin because it shows that you're putting your trust in your army rather than in Yahweh. And so Yahweh says, never put your trust in the sword, never put your trust in horses or the army. In fact, he says, if you will trust me, uh, put your trust in me, you'll never have to use the sword. Which tells you that whenever the Israelites were using the sword in the Old Testament, it was a result of their not putting their full trust in Yahweh. So here, he says the Lord incited David to sin. Uh, Doesn't James tell us that the Lord never tempts anybody? And then thousands of people lost their lives as a judgment for David's sin, which according to this author, Yahweh incited him to do. What is up with that? Kind of funky. Now, Several hundred years later, the author of Chronicles records the same event, but he says that Satan incited David to sin by counting his army. And this, I take to be evidence of a progress of Revelation. Early on, they really couldn't distinguish God from Satan, but the author of Chronicles gets that, and so he says it was Satan that tempted David to do that. But unless you think that the Lord and Satan are the same, and I hope you don't, uh, then we've got a contradiction here. There you go. Here's another example. Uh, in Exodus and several other places, it says that God visits the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So kids get punished for what their parents did down to the fourth generation. What kind of ethical system is that? Several hundred years later, Ezekiel gets a different revelation, and here the Lord is depicted as saying, a child shall not suffer for the iniquity of a parent, which is the exact opposite of what Moses said earlier. Uh, nor a parent suffer for the iniquity of a child. The righteousness of the righteous shall be his own, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be his own. And so here we have a clear difference of opinion about whether or not God judges children for what the parents do. Uh, people go to Great lengths to try to explain these things, uh, but in my view, uh, it's just not successful. Let's just deal with it as it is. Okay, then we have uh, uh, common human mistakes. And you find these all throughout the Bible. If you're if you're reading it, just honestly, you've got to acknowledge that he's got a lot of human mistakes. So here's a few examples. Paul, in 1 Corinthians, he says, I think, okay, he's, he's, he's dealing with the divisions in the church at Corinth. And um, uh, uh, some people say that since they were baptized by Peter, they're followers of Peter. Others, since I was baptized by Apollos, I'm followers of Apollos. So Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you, except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. And then, all of a sudden, he has a second thought about the matter. Okay, well, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Uh, Beyond that, I don't know whether I baptized anyone else. (laughs) So basically, I don't remember who I baptized. So he completely lost his point. (laughs) The point is, don't be saying that you are baptized in my name. But he clearly has a faulty memory. He makes a false statement. I baptized no one except for Christmas and Gaius. Oh, wait a second here now. Uh, So it's a a common uh, human human mistake of memory. And then we find Mark, when he opens up his Gospels, he says, As it is written, he's talking about John the Baptist here, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I'm sending my messenger before your face, who shall prepare your way. Problem is, it wasn't that Isaiah, it wasn't Isaiah who said that, that comes from Malachi. Uh, Mistaken reference. And then we find in Mark 2, Jesus says, Have you never heard what David did? How he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and did eat the showbread which is not lawful to eat except for the priest. Trouble is it was Ahimelech, Abiath's father who was a high priest when that event took place. Uh, read first Samuel twenty one. And then we find Matthew saying this uh, uh, then was fulfilled that which was he's talking about Judas getting thirty pieces of silver, and he says, Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued, and gave them for the potter's field. Trouble is it wasn't Jeremiah who said that, that came from Zechariah eleven thirteen. So we've got these common mistakes in human memory and, and, and wrong citations. And then finally, we've got unchristlike portraits of God. Uh, if you're new to the church here, uh, you should know that we had a series on this last year called Glimpses of Truth. And I encourage you to check out that series. Or if you want to go deeper into it, there's two books out there uh, that I wrote on this topic, uh, Cross Vision and Crucifixion of the Warrior God. But there's some po- if Jesus is the definitive revelation of God, and he is, according to the New Testament— well, there's a lot of pictures of God in the Old Testament that just don't, that, that, that contradict that revelation. So, for example, we find this in Deuteronomy. But as for the towns of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you, and this, the Lord is depicted as saying this, the ones that I'm giving you as an inheritance, you must not let anything that breathes remain alive. If it breathes, kill it. Man, woman, child, infants, and even the animals. You shall annihilate them, utterly destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Termites, all the ites. Kill all the ites. So we've got pictures of God that just fall beneath what we learn about God in Jesus Christ. Now, if you assume that a perfect God must reveal a perfect book, must reveal himself through a perfect book, these sorts of problems, these sorts of, these facts about the Bible are going to be very troubling to you. I, I, in fact, I think they're insurmountable. This is why people lose their faith. I thought the Bible was a perfect book, and here's, here's, here's these misquotes and, and wrong citations and all the, uh, all the rest. But the all-important question, folks, the all-important question is this. Why should we assume that we know what a perfect God is going to do, uh, or that we know what a perfect God-breathed, or, or that, that we know what a God-breathed book is going to look like? Uh, It may make sense to our common reasoning that that a perfect God would reveal himself through a perfect book. On one level, that makes sense. But if we learn anything about God in Jesus Christ, it's that he's got a funny way of blowing apart all of our assumptions about God. Uh, Should we be assuming we know anything? It's not like we have a a number of examples of a God-breathed book. We've only got one. It's sui generis. It's it's, it's one of a kind. So we don't know what a God-breathed book looks like until we find one. Uh, it's like the, 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 the disciples. They assumed they knew what a perfect Messiah was going to be. It was obvious to them. In fact, this is what almost all Jews of the first century believed. The Messiah is going to be a perfect Messiah. He's going to be born into royalty. Why would you know, the Messiah be born as a peasant? No, he'll come with, with dignity and power. He'll be a king, a mighty reigning king. And he's going to, he's going to support the religious establishment. and He's going to crack down on sinners. And he's going to defeat all of, 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 of his enemies, which happen to be our enemies. That's what the perfect Messiah is going to do. They were confident of that. When Jesus actually shows up and he's the actual Messiah, well, he doesn't quite fit their bill for what a perfect Messiah is supposed to be. He's not born into royalty. He's born to an unwed peasant teenager. And, and he becomes a hunted uh, exile, an immigrant. And his occupation, rather than being a king, he's a lowly carpenter. He's not at the top of the social strata. He's towards the bottom. And instead of defending the religious establishment and cracking down on sinners, Jesus cracks down on the religious establishment, and he befriends sinners. And then most surprising of all, instead of defeating his enemies, he gets crucified by his enemies out of love for his enemies. So much for making assumptions about what a perfect Messiah is supposed to be. The disciples were wrong on every account. And that just shows you how dangerous it is to make assumptions about what a perfect God's going to do. I submit to you that rather than assuming that we know what it means for a perfect God to breathe a revelation of himself, rather than assuming we know it's wiser to just let God teach us. And, and, and the place to look for, to learn this, I submit to you, would be, uh, the place where God most fully reveals himself, where he breathes the fullest revelation of himself, and that is on the cross. Because the New Testament presents the crucified Christ as the revelation that culminates and supersedes all previous revelations. And, and according to Jesus and the New Testament authors, all scripture ultimately is inspired as God breathed for the purpose of pointing to the cross. So let's ask the question, how does God breathe his perfect revelation on the cross? And what does that teach us about the way God breathes Scripture? All right? Now lean into this, because this is going to to require some thinking, and we worship God by thinking honestly and thoroughly about things. So are you ready to think? Are you ready to think? All right. Here we go. Here we go. Okay. There's two things to consider here. Two things I think the cross teaches us. First, if you were to ask a random sampling of people out there, what would it look like for God to perfectly reveal his omnipotent power? Today's message is being brought to you by Starbucks Double Shot Energy. Um, the, uh, I, I, the vast majority, I, I bet 99%, maybe more than that, would say it would be very impressive. There would be a wow factor. Uh, it would be shock and awe. God, he gave a perfect revelation of his power. You know, it'd just be stupendous, mind-boggling. He would maybe split the oceans, or he'd, he'd, he'd uproot Mount Everest and fly it around the earth a thousand times in a second, or he'd wipe out the stars from the sky. Or It'd, it'd be shocking. It'd be awesome. It would be, because, you know, an impressive God would reveal himself in an impressive way, wouldn't you think? Uh, that's the same kind of reasoning that's behind this a perfect God would reveal himself in a perfect book. Turns out that when God reveals his power, it doesn't look anything like that. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. He says the message of the, about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. When God shows off his power, he gets crucified. <laughs> That's not really impressive. There's no wow factor there. There's no shock and awe. Uh, that looks ridiculous. See, here's the thing. Humans have always assumed. Go back as far as you want. Study world religions. It's the beginning of history. And you find that humans have always assumed that God or the gods have the kind of power. They're, they have a, they're a super example of the kind of power that humans have always lusted after. And humans have always lusted after the power to kill our enemies, to protect ourselves, to get our way, to coerce people into submission. Impressive power, wild power. That's the kind of power we want. And so we assume that the gods have a lot of that. Universal assumption. And yet when God reveals his power on the cross, it turns out to be the opposite of that. Uh, It it blows that assumption sky high. It's so radical that the vast majority of Christians throughout history haven't really believed it to this day. It's the most offensive aspect of the gospel because the cross identifies God's power as synonymous with his self-sacrificial love. God's omnipotent power is is, is his willingness to to become a human being and to enter into our sin and our curse on the cross to die. God-forsaken death uh, for a race of people who want nothing to do with him. That's the power of God. It's not coercive power, impressive power, wow, shock and awe power. It's the influential power of self-sacrificial love just blows that assumption sky high. But if you are still holding to this idea that God's power is this, this might, the power to control, to manipulate, to get your way, well then this looks ridiculous, stupid. What kind of deity has all the power in the world and then you use it to get yourself crucified out of love for the people who are crucifying you? That looks foolish and that looks weak. But to those who are being saved, it, it's, it's the power and the wisdom of, 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 of God. So, so follow this. Um, If if God, if his fullest revelation, if the fullest revelation of God, the full God-breathed revelation of his power on the cross looks foolish and weak, why would we think that the scripture which God inspired for the purpose of pointing to the cross would not also look foolish and weak? If, If God revealed himself through Christ who embodied all the sin and all the imperfections of the world. God's foolish revelation came through one who embodied all that's wrong and broken and sinful and imperfect with his world. Why would we think, why would we assume that the scripture which is inspired, God breathed, for the purpose of pointing to the cross would be completely free of, of imperfections and sin and broken stuff? The fact that God revealed himself to the one who bore all the imperfections of the world uh, should tell us that it's not a problem for God to breathe through imperfect people. Uh, Imperfections are no obstacle. In fact, if God breathed his fullest revelation through the one who bore all the sin and imperfections of the world, then in a sense, all of the sin and imperfections in the Bible have already been breathed through on the cross. So why would we think that it's a problem for God to inspire Scripture even though it has imperfect and even sinful things? If, If Put it the other way around. If God breathes his fullest revelation through, through uh, if something that looks foolish and weak, I think we would, should expect that since it's the same God who breathes, breathes his revelation on the cross is the same God who breathes scripture for the purpose of pointing to the cross, that since the cross is foolish and weak, would we expect the Bible to also include foolish and weak human things? And since, since his fullest revelation comes through one who embodies all the imperfection of sin and sin in the world, wouldn't we expect Scripture to, to also include uh, uh, sin and imperfection? Because it points to the cross. The idea that, that the Bible has to be a perfect book by our standards, it, that just contradicts the kind of revelation that we find in Jesus Christ on the cross. So that's the first consideration. Here's the second one. And this one teaches us why, God, why God's revelation on the cross and in the Bible gets mixed up with human imperfection and human sin. Those who assume that a perfect God must breathe a perfect book, they're, they're assuming that God's breathing is unilateral. It's a one-way activity. Uh, that God alone does it, and nothing else gets mixed up with it. So if God unilaterally breathes the Bible, then everything in the Bible comes directly from God. And there were, it, it couldn't be the case that it gets mixed up with any imperfections or any errors or any sin. Now, not only is it the case that the Bible we actually have is not that one, but if we keep our thinking about God anchored in the cross as we should, we, we learn, if we think about it, we learn that God's breathing is not unilateral, it's relational. It, it, God breathes out of relationship with others, and these others are not perfect people. They're imperfect, they're fallen, and that's why God's breathing gets mixed up with imperfect and fallen, sinful stuff. Uh, so, uh, on the cross, here's what I mean. God, at, on the cross, we find that God acts towards us, but we also find that God humbly allows people to act toward Him and to condition what gets produced as a result of His breathing. So on the cross, God acts towards us. He takes the initiative. It's his plan of salvation. He he, he devises that. And he sets aside his divine prerogatives as God, and he becomes a human being, and then he puts himself in a position where he's going to get crucified. But the revelation of God on the cross also involves God allowing people to act toward him and condition how he appears as a result of his breathing. So all the violence done to Jesus, all the abuse, all the whipping, the scourging, all of that, that wasn't done by God. That was done by human beings. We're operating under fallen powers. Um, and, and not only that, but on the cross, God, Jesus Christ, bears all the sin and imperfection of the world. This is God humbly allowing the sin and imperfection of the world, all of humanity, to act on him. And to condition what gets produced as a result of his breathing. It's not a unilateral thing. It's, it's, it's a relational thing. This is why the cross is simultaneously beautiful and ugly. It's beautiful insofar as it reveals God acting toward us. God stooping this infinite distance to become really what is opposite himself, out of love for us. It's beautiful. But it's also hideously ugly insofar as it reflects God allowing people to act toward him. Uh, in fact, the cross mirrors the ugliness of the sin of the world. So if, if God's fullest revelation comes through the one who bears all the sin and imperfection of the world the one who is simultaneously ugly and beautiful, the one who, who reflects God acting toward us, but also God allowing people to act toward him, shouldn't we read the Bible knowing that God's breathing is going to be relational? Shouldn't we read the Bible, if we take the cross as our center, shouldn't we read the Bible knowing that it's going to reflect both God acting toward us, but also God, since he doesn't, he doesn't rely on coercive power to perfect people before he, he breathes through them, Shouldn't we read the Bible knowing it will reflect God acting toward us, but also God allowing people and the biblical authors to act toward him and condition what gets produced as a result of his breathing? Uh, Shouldn't we read the Bible knowing that it's going to look beautiful to the degree that it reflects God acting toward us, but it's going to look ugly and imperfect and foolish and weak and even sinful to the degree that it reflects God allowing people to act toward him? On one level, this is obvious. Uh, even the people who assume that God's breathing is unilateral, they don't really believe it because everyone acknowledges, everyone admits that that the the Bible reflects the individual personalities and, and, and perspectives and writing style and cultural conditioning of the biblical authors. Everyone acknowledges that. You don't find a uniform style or personality throughout the Bible. You find a lot of individuals. And that tells you that in the process of breathing scripture, God allowed the individual personalities and writing styles and perspectives and, 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 and culture of the, of the biblical authors to condition what got produced as a result of his breathing. I mean, for example, um, uh, I, 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 I think it's, I'm pretty sure that God knows perfect Greek, you think? Um, but Mark doesn't. Mark's, Mark's Greek is really kind of raw. It's much worse than Paul's. And yet we got Mark in the Bible with all of his poor Greek and his poor grammatical skills, which clearly indicates that God didn't feel the need to coercively perfect Mark's Greek before he breathed through him. He breathes through Mark as he finds him, as he is. And so we, and, and, and that conditions what gets produced as a result of God's breathing. So God breathes imperfect Greek. I'm pretty sure God, got, God has a perfect memory, but Paul doesn't. He couldn't remember who he baptized and who he didn't baptize. And God clearly didn't feel the need to coercively improve Paul's memory before he breathes through him. He breathes through Paul as he finds him because he's not a coercive God. He doesn't lobotomize people before he uses them. He uses them as they are. So God breathes a faulty memory, even though his memory is perfect. So he allows Paul's faulty memory to condition what gets produced as a result of his breathing. And if we take the cross as our paradigm, as we should— this should not trouble us or surprise us. It, 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 we should expect this. Look, at it. if God could breathe his perfect revelation to the one who bears all the sin and imperfection of the world, then why would anyone think it's a problem for God to breathe through uh, the poor citations of Matthew and, 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 and Mark? Mark. Uh, they don't recall exactly who, who said what in the Old Testament? Or why would we think it's a problem for God to breathe through two authors who contradict each other? Or why would we think it's a problem for God to breathe through Moses' fallen and cultural conditioned view that, that God visits the iniquity of parents on, the, on the children to the third and fourth generation? Or even why would we think it's a problem for God to breathe through his ancient people who sometimes saw him as an ancient Near Eastern violent warrior God? Which is, by the way, what I think is going on with those violent portraits of God in the Old Testament. Uh, if we anchor our thinking about God's breathing on the cross, these are exactly the kind of things that we should expect. Uh, in fact, in fact, not only do these, these, these imperfections of the Bible not dis- distract from God's breathing, or from the inspiration of the Bible, but they contribute to it. For the same reasons that the sin and the imperfections that Christ bore on the cross contribute to, they're an essential part of, God's breathing is full revelation on the cross. They contribute to it. Um, they confirm for us what the cross reveals about God. The cross reveals a God who stoops down to our level, who enters into solidarity with us in all of our imperfections, our weakness, our foolishness, our sin. He enters into solidarity with us, and he uses us as we are. And the imperfections of the Bible simply confirm that that is the case. They confirm that God has always been a God who relies on the, the, the power of his self-sacrificial love, his influential love, rather than the power of coercion. The imperfections of the Bible reveal that God's always been a God who, who manifests his power through human weakness. And he manifests his perfection through human imperfection. And he manifests his beauty by entering into human ugliness. And he manifests his holiness by entering into solidarity with human sin. He's always been, that's who he is on the cross. So of course that's who he is throughout the Bible it confirms that God's always been a God who is willing to bear the sin and imperfection of his people and to thereby take on an appearance that mirrors that sin and imperfection. And that's what he does on the cross, and that's what he does throughout all of Scripture. He's a God who doesn't first co- need, feel the need to coercively uh, perfect people before he breathes through them. No, he breathes through them. He uses them just as they are. So the, 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 the mistakes and the errors and the contradictions and the imperfections of the Bible, they, they confirm the cross, and so they contribute to the God-breathed nature of, of, of Scripture. In fact, they're part of the good news. If you, if you understand the imperfections of the Bible through the lens of the cross, they become part of the good news. Because, look it, if God could breathe his written revelation in Scripture uh, by, by using imperfect and fallen and fallible people, foolish and silly people, if God could do that, well, then there's hope for you and me, isn't there? That means that, that you can be very confident. <laughs> Amen. You can be very confident that God can use you as you are right now, warts and all. As you are, warts and all. Uh, You know, a lot of Christians get screwy thinking on this. They think, oh, you know, someday if I get over this addiction or if I get over this habit or get rid of this attitude or whatever, then God will be able to use me. But see, if God had that policy, we wouldn't have a God-breathed Bible. (laughs) God always uses imperfect, fallible, fallen people, and he doesn't perfect them first. He uses them as they are. I don't care how big your warts are, and I don't care how many warts you've got. I don't care how ugly your warts are. I don't care how stinky your warts are. As you are right now, with the cross reveals and with the Bible reveals and the imperfections of the Bible reveal, is that as you are right now, warts and all, God loves you, and God can use you as you are right now. And so, so if, if you're, if, if, in fact, if you're willing to let God use you with all of your warts, that's one of the ways that you outgrow your warts. You lose warts. By getting involved in the game, because the Christian faith is not a spectator sport for anybody. (laughs) It's a participatory, it's not really a sport at all, but it's it's a participatory thing. And by, so if you're sitting around there, you know, on the sidelines, being the, oh, I'm unworthy, and I'm too unholy, and I'm too immature, and I'm too this, whatever. I really encourage you to get off your butt and get into the game, as you are right now, and let God use you. And just say, God, I got a lot of warts. I got a lot of warts, but I want to be involved in this. I want to be part of the kingdom. I want to be helping build the church. I want to be loving on people and find something to do. (laughs) Find something to do. And the doing of that is one of the ways that God uses to begin to rid you of warts. Uh, So, folks, I'll, I'll close with this. Some people are maybe wondering, well, don't you believe the Bible is infallible? And my answer would be absolutely if, and this is a big if, If you read the Bible for the purpose for which God breathed it, and the ultimate purpose for which God breathed it it, is to lead people to Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ's ministry and his identities is centered on the cross, which is the definitive revelation of God. Read it for that purpose, and it's unfailing. Now, if you impose any other agenda on it, if you read the Bible to try to get scientific information from it, or read the Bible because you think you're going to get perfect history from it, or read the Bible because you think you can prove it's a perfect book, it's going to let you down. It's going to let you down. But read it for the purpose for which God inspired it. Well, Now the problems are no longer problems. They become assets because they point to the cross. And it will unfailingly, it will unfailingly, unfailingly do that which God intended it to do. And the imperfections help do that. I hope you can see that now. They help do that. So folks, if you're ever you know, sharing Christ with somebody and they say, how can you believe in a Bible being God-inspired when it's got all these errors and contradictions and whatever in it? I encourage you to re- reply to them. Those errors and contradictions, they don't detract from the inspiration of the Bible. They contribute to it. And then explain to them how God revealed himself fully on a, in a foolish and weak-looking cross. Uh, and, 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 and how all those imperfections actually point to that. The Bible's foolish and weak and imperfect because the cross, God revealed himself through what was weak, foolish, imperfect, and sinful. Amen? Okay, would you stand? Uh, if you're here this morning and have any need that could use uh, a, a, use prayer, I encourage you, whatever that need is, come up here and pray. There'll be some folks here at the steps, and they'd love to pray with you about that, that uh, thing in your life. If you're here this morning and you're not a, a surrendered follower of Jesus, I encourage you to uh, think about becoming one. And if you want to find out more about that, come up here and talk to these folks. They'd love to... to uh, uh, Explain to you what it is to be a follower of Jesus. I told you this was going to be a weird, mind-bending one. Uh, I think I've given you some things to think about. I encourage you to chew on it. Think on it. Don't have to agree with me, but uh, uh, chew on it. Worship God by how you think. So as we leave this place, can we do so as the people who are committed to thinking? To thinking and worshiping God by the honesty and the robustness of the way we think about things. If you're agreeing with that, say amen and go out and love your neighbors. God bless you guys. See you next week.